If you have a Bible, if you would turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, um, and stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's Word. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the Lord of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you may keep away from any brother or sister who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. And it was not because we do not have that right, but to give yourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. For if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them, that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace in all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is I, the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask um, that you would be here, that your peace would reign in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, that you would show us um, what this book and this chapter has to teach us and what it is that we need to hear from you and how it points to Jesus. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we all approach preparing for disaster differently. Now, it wasn't that long ago I found myself standing in the storm shelter when Brianna was out of town with both of my boys, mostly sound asleep, when I realized, hey, you know, I probably really should have prepared that disaster storm shelter kit that we talked so much about, and now here, here I am, and it's not ready. Others can be more prepared, right? Some can be extremely prepared, maybe like uh, Leslie Nope, and have whole binders prepared detailing every possible scenario of what could go wrong. Um, or others, maybe like doomsday preparers, right, who are preppers. It's people who enjoy preparing for every possible apocalyptic scenario, whether through it's amassing just firearms or food or supplies or, you know, any kind of thing somebody might need at the end of the world. They've, they've got it ready to go. Now, I'm not advocating for that kind of extreme preparedness, um, but how, the question really is, how should we prepare for the end of the world? That's so much of what First and Second Thessalonians are about, and the questions that the Thessalonian church has is, what are we supposed to do, Paul? How should we be ready? Because none of us want to be ill-prepared. You don't want to find yourself like me in a storm shelter with nowhere to sit or nothing to entertain your children while you're down there. 
And much of 2 Thessalonians has been about this. And Paul wants them to be prepared. So in this last chapter, he gives them kind of their final instructions on how they should live. And really how they and how we are supposed to prepare for the end. So in this chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, he gives us kind of three ways to prepare. He tells us what we should pray. Tells us what to do, and then he kind of also tells us how to how to resist. And so the first way, if in your bulletins you are taking notes that we can prepare is through prayer. And so the, the point number one in our bulletins is that we need to pray gospel-centered prayers. That we should pray gospel-centered prayers. So in these first five verses, Paul has a number of things that he is praying for. Right? His prayer list has a lot on it. But if you look at it, this prayer is completely gospel-centered. It's not really focused on human success, it's focused on gospel success. And it's not even really a prayer request, it's more of a prayer command. Okay, he's not just saying, put my prayer request in the church bulletin or the email. He is commanding them in his authority as an apostle saying, this is what you should pray. And he says, pray for us. It's not just a, a generic prayer for the success of their ministry, right in verse 1 when he says pray for us. He's actually praying for something different entirely. He's not asking for prayer that Paul Ministries would meet all their fundraising goals. It's not a prayer that they would hit all their church planting metrics. It's not a prayer that their church would grow by 50% at the end of the year. Instead, he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. He's asking, hey, pray that the gospel and that the word of Jesus speed ahead. Pray that the gospel succeeds. It's not a prayer for himself, it's a prayer for the kingdom of God. And this phrase, it may, may speed ahead, it's often translated as run. Right? It's the word used to describe the Christian life. The, that the race that we run as we are following Jesus. Paul, he's not praying, hey, pray that I run well. He's saying, hey, pray that the gospel runs well. It's a prayer that the gospel would succeed and run and run and keep running. It's a prayer that after Paul finishes his race, that the gospel would keep on running. The gospel really is the baton that we pass on through generation to generation from Paul to all the way to now. Uh, even our church institutions and our, our own church family, they don't matter as much as the gospel. Okay, it doesn't matter if pastors like Paul have big fancy ministries. I, I, I don't really want one. It doesn't matter if even Tanglewood succeeds and grows and grows and, and grows. Our prayer and our goal shouldn't be about our kingdom, our little center of God's or the world. But it should be that the gospel of Jesus saves souls. Not that those things are bad, but that's what we, we pray for. Ultimately, we're just a cog in the gospel machine that is going to keep running even if our church disappeared tomorrow. Now, that can sound negative, right? It can make it sound like we don't matter, which is not at all what I'm trying to say. But it, actually what this is, is it is freeing. Okay, the success of the gospel... The success of the kingdom of God in our community and in our world, it does not depend on you or me. It does not depend on, on our church. And this lack of dependence, it doesn't mean that we don't do anything. Instead, it means we get to preach the gospel freely. We get to preach it without having a heavy burden on our shoulders, feeling like we have to accomplish it or we must do this or that. We, we don't have to stress. We don't have to worry that the gospel might not succeed. It frees us. It also frees us from trying to compete. If revival broke out in town, if revival broke out at another church, we get to rejoice. We celebrate. We don't have to be jealous. We don't have to be angry. We don't have to be, oh, I wish that would happen here. We can just say, yes, that's what we were praying for. Praise God. Look, the kingdom of God is going forth. 
We pray for the gospel. We don't just pray for ourselves. And he says, you know, pray the gospel may speed ahead and be honored as among you. Because the gospel ran and it's, it succeeded with the Thessalonians. It did that with only three weeks of Paul's ministry. It's done that without the apostles and big fancy leaders. It's happened even in the face of great persecution and suffering. The gospel is running and speeding ahead. His prayer is gospel-centered. It's not church-centered. And the prayer continues in verse 2. He says, hey, pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. The gospel doesn't teach us that we have to fight and defeat all of our enemies. The gospel tells us that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus did on the cross that we've been singing about. The gospel is that our God defeats our enemies for us. But it's also a reminder that there really are enemies of the church. There really are some people who are even are simply wicked and evil. There are even those who, who genuinely oppose the church and stand against it, whether they recognize it as that or not. Now, we don't know if Paul, maybe he had somebody specifically in mind here that he's praying for. Maybe he's thinking about the leaders of the city of Thessalonica who banished him and kind of exiled him from it. Maybe he's thinking about the legalism party and the Judaizers who have opposed Paul throughout much of his ministry. could be somebody else entirely. We don't really know. But the prayer is that God would be the one to deliver them. And that he gives this reminder at the end, too, of verse 2, for not all have faith. I don't think he's talking about just the world, that not everybody in the world has faith. That's obvious. But I think he's giving them a reminder that, hey, not even everybody in the church has faith. Not everybody who says they are a Christian among you really has genuine faith in Jesus. But the motivation of these prayers and the motivation for our gospel hope, we find it in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. We can pray as those who are filled with hope. We can pray as those who have knowledge that our God is faithful. He will answer these kinds of prayers. That not everybody has faith, but our God always has faith. And His faith never runs out. Even 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, it reminds us, even if we are faithless, our God is faithful. He is faithful to the end. Faithfulness is who God is. He can't be unfaithful any more than He can simply stop existing. It is core to who he is. And to that faithful God, we pray, we pray the rest of verse 3, that he will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. This establishment, it's not like the founding of a company saying, hey, established in this year. This establishment is the strengthening of God. It is praying that God will strengthen you, that God will stick by you. And this guarding you against the evil one is a prayer that God will guard and protect us. Particularly, it's a prayer that God watches over to protect you from the devil and from the enemies of Christ's bride who scheme and who plot against you. Church, you are more heavily guarded than any maximum security prison or the White House or Fort Knox with all of its gold. You have the faithful God who watches over you, guarding you to protect you. You have God the Almighty, the Creator, the Father watching over you, and He is faithful. And he has made promises to this effect. He's made promises at the end of Matthew 28 that he will be with us even to the end of the age. He will watch over you and guard you. And notice this isn't just a prayer that evil will always stay away from us. It's not a prayer that evil will never come to our doors because it does. It's not even a prayer that evil will never harm our bodies. But it is a prayer praying and asking that, hey, evil 
will never triumph. They can never harm our souls, and God will strengthen us so that we can face it, so we can resist it, and that ultimately one day we can overcome it through the power of Christ in this life or in the next, most definitely. Even if we feel like we can't, God can and He will. And Paul prays this confidently in verse 4. He says, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and that you will do the things that we command. So first he prays. He knows that the Thessalonians are going to listen to him. They're going to obey him and they're going to pray these kind of gospel-centered prayers. Why? Because they already are doing it. He's already seen evidence of their faithfulness and their obedience. And the question is, well, could that be said of us? Are we doing and will we do all the things that God commands? Paul finishes the prayer in verse 5, and he prays, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. He prays that God will direct their hearts, that God will help them to be filled with love and with endurance. And these aren't qualities that we get on our own. These aren't qualities that we, we get on our own strength. These are things that we need God to give to us. We need Him to direct our hearts to love the right things. We need Him to help us be steadfast. But you can believe if, if you pray these kind of prayers, if you pray for God, direct my heart, God, fill me with the love of Christ, God, help me to be steadfast, these are prayers God is going to say yes to. So your things in His Word He's told you to pray. So when you pray it, God listens to those prayers. So how can we pray for the end? Well, we don't need to, you know, pray against the Antichrist. There's not even anything necessarily specific that you have to pray for in thinking of that. We can just pray for the gospel and the kingdom of God to come and rule and reign in our world and to rule and reign in our hearts. So that's the first way that we can prepare is we just pray gospel-centered prayers. That's what we pray, but what can we do? Point number two, if you're taking notes, is that we should do quiet, faithful work. We should do quiet, faithful work. Now, this whole section of chapter 3 is, honestly, it's a little weird. Seems kind of strange, almost out of place. Like, what is going on here? And Paul gives this kind of extended and repeated warning against idleness. Or your translation may say unruly, disruptive, lazy, undisciplined. Now, our connotations of many of those words can make us think this is just about laziness. Um, but the, this word really, in the Greek, it has more of a sense of being disordered. Or not acting correctly, not living in the way that you are supposed to. But and you can see this no matter how this, or you can see this come out no matter what your translation says when you look at verse 6. And he says, now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother and sister who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. So first of all, you see this is a really strong rebuke. Okay, Paul doesn't just say, stop doing this. Paul makes it clear when he commands, hey, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this is like a parent when they start using your child's middle name, you know, uh-oh, I'm really in trouble now. So as Paul is saying, as an apostle, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, stop it. Okay, he wants to get them, get them to pay attention. And you see, what does he want them to do? Well, they are walking in idleness, not in accord with the tradition that you are received. They are not walking or living as Christians should walk and live. They are out of order. Their walk is all funky and wrong. They should be following the apostolic tradition. They should be submitting to the scriptures. They should be submitting to the letters that Paul has given them. But they're not. Problem is, well, what aren't they doing? How exactly are they sinning here specifically? 
Okay, because there seems to be some kind of clear and specific sin going on in the Thessalonian church that they know that they're doing and Paul knows that they're doing and Timothy knows that they're doing and Paul's telling them to quit it. But we don't know exactly what's going on here. It has something to do with their work. They're not working correctly. It might not even be working at all. We don't really know. And Paul doesn't seem to be interested in explaining the situation for us, as frustrating as that it is. He's interested in getting it to stop, getting it to knock off. Now, I don't think we're meant to really know, because if we were, God would have made it clear, and then we wouldn't get to disagree or argue about what it possibly could be. But we do need to try and wrestle with it, I think, so that we can figure out, well, how does this apply to us? Because it just, shouldn't just be an intellectual exercise. It's, well, how do I need to obey this? How am I not obeying it? But at verse 11, it's the primary rebuke that he sees. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. And then he uses the example in verse 10 to say that there are some who are not willing to work, they shouldn't get to eat. So it seems there, there are some who aren't working, but why? What are they doing? The short answer is, well, we really don't know. The longer answer is there's some possibilities. So I'm going to give them to you, then give you my opinion, and you can pick one that you think fits the Scriptures best. Um, so it could be that some of them thought, well, the end is coming really soon. Jesus is about to come back, so they all quit their jobs and just quit working. That's happened a number of times throughout history, right? Even recently in our modern history, we can think of times of cults or small groups of people or someone who claims to be a prophet says, hey, the end is coming, so quit your job, sell your stuff, you know, maybe give me your money too, that, that might help. Um, and so people do this, right? So that's a popular understanding. So people think maybe that's what's going on in First and Second Thessalonians, and it's about the end, they just quit. The problem could just be that maybe some of the Thessalonians are just lazy and didn't want to work. That could be it, but Paul also probably would have used other words to describe this. Um, there's other words to better describe laziness that would have made it more clear. And it's clear he's not really talking about, hey, don't give to poor people who don't have jobs. He's not advocating some kind of economic policy for the church because all throughout the New Testament, and Paul himself instructs them to give to the poor, give to the needy. doesn't matter if they're working or not, they're needy. You give to them. But it could be, that could be it, and it could be that they're um, so distracted by spiritual concerns, they thought, well, I don't really need to work. I'm just, it's just me and Jesus. I'm just quitting my job so I can focus on God. Theologian John Calvin thought this. He thought maybe the Thessalonians had the first seeds of monks and monasteries. Particularly, he was thinking of the corrupt monasteries of his day in the time of the Reformation, where all these monks and theologians are just sitting around doing nothing and getting fat while people are killing themselves and giving money to them to support them. Or it could have been they were participating in patronage. Patronage is kind of a common practice um, in the Roman Empire and in the Thessalonian cities and other places like this. Um, you could think of, we would commonly write, think of somebody who's like a wealthy benefactor where they hire a musician or an artist and pay them money so they can just paint them things and they can be like, yeah, that's, that's my person. They, they paint stuff for me. But that happened, it was widespread, it happened in other ways. It wasn't just painters and musicians, it would be anybody. You would be um, kind of beholden to your patron and they would provide for your needs and you wouldn't really have to work. You just kind of have to keep them happy and maybe tell other people how awesome they are. So there could be, Paul's just telling them, hey, knock that off, get some real jobs, quit being dependent on these rich patrons. There's some evidence of that, um, but we, we don't know. It, it could be that these people he's talking about are false teachers, could be traveling missionaries or evangelists who want the church to support them, but they don't really want to actually do any work, whether outside of the church or even inside of the church, helping them out. In fact, a lot of early writings, um, after, in the early writings of the church fathers, early Christians after the Bible was written, they warn frequently about people like this. Say, so, hey, if somebody comes to your church saying that they want to, you know, 
you want you to support them in their ministry, only listen to them unless they stay for too many days. And they put, if they stay this long, they're a false teacher. Get rid of them. They need to get a job. Now, this is part of what I think it, it might could be. I think it's a mix of this and people thinking that they, they are overly spiritual and they don't need to work. I'm just going to focus on me and Jesus and, and you provide for me. Uh, now, maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe you like another explanation better. But I think this one best fits what Paul's talking about, particularly in his own example in verse 7. When he says, well, for you yourselves know that you ought to imitate us because we weren't idle when we were with you. So he's reminding the Thessalonians, okay, well, how was I acting when I came? How was Silas and, and Titus and, and the others who came with me? How did we act when we were among you? In verse 8, well, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we were working day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul's well, saying, hey, when I was with you, I was working hard. And I don't think he's just saying, talking about his tent making that he did. Okay, otherwise it would seem like he just spent 24-7 night and day making tents and not really doing anything else so that he could just buy his own food. But no, he probably spent much of his day making tents or even helping with the church. Maybe he was helping them with their work during the day. And then he'd spend his evenings with the church, teaching them the scriptures, making disciples, working with them. Otherwise, his church wouldn't exist if he wasn't doing these things. All day long, Paul was working, right? He wasn't just holed up in a room sleeping somewhere while the Thessalonians were out in the fields, and then they came back, and Paul said, okay, what's for dinner? Okay, that's not what he was doing. In verse 9, he tells them, hey, it, it, it wasn't that we did this because we don't have the right for you to support us, but to give in you ourselves as an example to imitate. So Paul is a minister of the gospel. He had the right to not pay for food. He talked about this, went through 1 Corinthians, if you remember, we... Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but he wanted to be an example. He wanted to say, this, Thessalonians, this is how you work and how you follow Jesus. This is how you do your work and you still follow Jesus. And also, this is how leaders should do their work and follow Jesus. And verse 10, for even if we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, don't let him eat. Now, again, I don't think he's just giving out economic policy here. He's not saying to start questioning the poor and make sure they have jobs. But I do think he's saying, that, hey, Christians, you're supposed to be working. You're supposed to do quiet and faithful work. You're not supposed to spend all your time just praying and expecting others to take care of you. You've got to participate and help the church here. And so as Christians, we should be people who do quiet and faithful work. Verse 11 tells us, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. You're not busy at work, but you're busybodies. We're all tempted to be busybodies, aren't we? Now, we might not like to consider ourselves busybodies, but these bodies are other people, right? But busybodies, like most sinners, they don't really want to admit what they are. But busybodies, those are those people who aren't worried about or they're not doing what God has called them to do, but they're really worried about what you are doing. Make sure you're doing what they think God thinks you should be doing. Or they're just coming over to inspect, to check you out, make sure you're doing things right. Maybe this is the person, right, who always has a news article or a story to tell you about somebody somewhere who isn't doing what they are, should be doing, and they want to tell you about it and how they should fix it and what, what they should be doing instead. Well, instead, in verse 12, Paul commands us, don't be busybodies. Now, such person we command and encourage, again, in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's using their full middle names here to, to lay the point home, do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, part of the reason I don't want us to just take this passage and think, oh, this is just people who don't have jobs and they need to go get them, is because then we can just ignore it. We can just say, oh, good, verses 6 through 13, I don't have to listen to those because it's not about me. I've got this one down. I'll focus on something else. Instead, I want us to examine our own hearts and think, even if you think it is that, think, well, okay, well, how am I failing to obey in the same way as the Thessalonians? 
Your temptation might not be to have no work, but your temptation might be to have a loud life. And I love this part of the command. We are commanded to do their work quietly. Our work is, we're not to do our work for a big crowd, but our world is so concerned with being loud. Uh, our world is so concerned with being heard. We want to express ourselves. And not really we want to just express ourselves. I, I want you to hear me express myself. And not just you, I want more people. I, I need a platform. Kids grow up, they want to be famous more than anything else now. We want to be loud. We don't want to be quiet. And this desire, it's not just the culture out there. It's in all of us. It seeps into our, our stream and into our thoughts and our actions, whether we like it or not, because it's subconscious. But Jesus and Paul and God in His Word, He calls us to live quiet lives. That we just need to be faithful in the work that God has given us. Faithful in that work, whether it's working at the hospital, the oil fields and schools, or any other work that you can think of. For those of you who are retired, I'm sorry, you don't get to get out of obeying this verse either. I think we're still called to live quiet, faithful lives. God still wants us to live a quiet and faithful life, to do the quiet and faithful work of prayer, the quiet and faithful work of sharing the gospel, the quiet and faithful work of stewarding well the blessings and the things that God has given us, the quiet and faithful work of caring for our friends and for our family and those that Jesus has placed on our path. And what a different kind of thing for Paul to command us to live in, in, in light of the end of the world, that we don't have to be loud and, and boisterous and, and have a crowd and everyone see how awesome and faithful and great Christians we are. We are just supposed to live quietly and faithfully in our small corner, obeying Jesus. So quiet and faithful work is what we're supposed to do, but well, how can we endure? When, when things get tough, like, okay, that sounds nice, but things get hard, what are we supposed to do? Point number three in your bulletins is that we need to have a peace-centered endurance. That we should have a peace-centered endurance. That we just don't need to white-knuckle our endurance and just grit our teeth and try really hard. That we should actually have endurance that is filled with the peace of Jesus. This is where Paul concludes. He doesn't just conclude chapter 3. He, entire, he concludes the whole letter of 2 Thessalonians. And this is, his second, this is his last letter to the church. He wrote one more. This is where he ends. He ends with the peace of Jesus. And his peace is what allows us to not grow weary. And this section in, sorry, in verse 13 might sound a little familiar to you. It's not that long ago that we finished the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6 ends with a similar call to not grow tired of or not grow weary of doing good. But his context here is slightly different. In verse 13, he says, As for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Do any of you feel weary? Don't feel like you have to raise your hand. Some of you might felt so weary you wanted to collapse. So I was going to, you know, take a poll and make you lift your hand up. This life can be wearying. But Christ's burden is light. His way is easy. But sometimes I still get tired anyway. Sometimes I'm tempted to take a shortcut somewhere else off the path that Jesus wants me to walk. Sometimes the enemy whispers in your ear and tells you, well, Jesus said this is light, but this seems really heavy. My, light, my yoke is actually even lighter. Why don't you do what I would like you to do? But here is Paul. He's on the sidelines of our marathon as we run trying to cheer us on. 
to not grow weary in doing good. But what makes us want to quit so often is hardship, right? I want to quit running when my legs get tired and it's harder to breathe. Well, that's hard, so now I want to quit. I want to stop. Well, Paul knows we're going to be tempted to quit, and one of the reasons we'll be tempted to quit is because of the sinfulness of other people. Paul knows the Thessalonians are going to struggle because of the disordered and the idle in their midst. And so in verse 14 he says, Hey, if anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, um, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them, that they may be ashamed. For the Thessalonians, that means that anybody who ignored this letter needed to be kind of ignored themselves. It seems like Paul might even be talking about excommunicating them out of the church. Not just those who are, it's not because they're not listening to Paul's letters, because they're refusing to listen to Scripture. They're refusing to obey the commands of God, and not just the ones that they like, but all of them. And we should pay attention. He's saying, hey, pay attention to who these people are and remove them from the church. At the very least, you need to stop personally fellowshipping with them. And this might sound harsh, but Paul means this to be gentle. He's not trying to be cruel or mean. He's not taking about just grabbing people, you know, by the arms and take them kicking and screaming out of the church and say, we don't want your kind around here anymore. Instead, in verse 15, he says, he reminds them, don't regard them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. We're still not allowed, even as we have to do this, to call these people our enemies. We're supposed to think of them as our brothers and sisters in the faith, that we're trying to warn them, trying to shame them, trying to get their attention, hoping that they'll come back to Jesus and live the way that they should. And we can't grow weary of doing this. Okay, it's wearying work to love people. It's not wearying work to love people who are great and who love you back the way that you want, but it's really wearying work to love people who are not so great. It's much easier to just dismiss them as en your enemy or as enemies of the gospel of Jesus and kick them out and be done with them and wash your hands and have nothing to do with that anymore. Okay, excommunicating people can actually be easy. But God tells us He doesn't let us take this path. We can't grow weary of love. Even in the midst of the conflict, we are supposed to love these people as our brothers and sisters in the faith. So how can we avoid growing weary even in doing this? Well, we do it through the peace of Jesus. This is why verse 16 it brings us this beautiful, it's kind of profound benediction that we do sometimes. Now may the Lord of peace himself bring you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you. Jesus is the Lord of peace. He is the only one who can bring peace. Our, our world is filled with lords of war and woe. Or it is filled with lords who promise that they can lead you to their promised land if you just bow down to them and you let them defeat and destroy your enemies or their enemies. But there's only one true Lord of peace and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who bestows peace. The command here to not grow weary again, it is rooted in the peace of Jesus. It is not rooted in your spiritual stamina. It is not rooted in your patience. It is not rooted in your natural ability at all. It is a gift that Jesus gives. And he is the one who bestows this peace. So how can we gain this peace of Christ? May the Lord of peace himself give you peace. We pray for it. This peace is a gift, but it only comes from Jesus. So how can we get it? Well, first, we've got to put our faith in Jesus. Okay, Jesus came down to this earth to bring true and lasting peace. He was born in a smelly manger to bring true and lasting peace. And he was born there to defeat sin and death and the demonic power that has ruined his creation and broken our lives. And the peace of Jesus, it didn't come after a, a military battle between big armies on a battlefield. 
His peace came through what seemed like a defeat on the cross. What seemed like he was being mocked for being a bad king. That is when his peace came. Through his death and resurrection of the cross, Jesus brought peace. And he brings the peace of salvation and eternal life through dying for our sins. The true and the lasting eternal peace. The thing that all humanity longs for, whether we recognize it or not or admit it. And it only comes through Jesus. But Jesus offers it to anyone who wants it, to anyone who will put their faith in him. Anyone who admits that they need his peace and they can't get it on their own, no much, much they've tried. And this peace is always possible, notice, to give you peace at all times. Jesus' peace, it doesn't just come at the end of the world when he returns and he sets up his kingdom and he rules and he reigns. And Satan's locked away forever and sin is no more and suffering is gone. That peace is, was coming there too. That's it's the fullness of it. But his peace is also available to us right now. His peace is available to you in this moment. It will be available to you tomorrow and the next day when suffering comes. It is at all times and in every way. There is never a time in your life that Christ's peace is not available to you. His peace is available to you in the hospital bed. It is available to you when you feel your mind slipping away from you. It is available to you when you are at your lowest. It is available to you when you are at your highest. It is there at all times in every way. This is why in Philippians 4, 6, it describes the peace that passes all understanding. Christ's peace is peace that doesn't make any sense how a human being could have it. At a time when no one else would have this peace, you can have peace. But Christ's peace is for all times, and it is peace that comes at the end of 16. The Lord be with you all. We can have this peace because we know that Jesus is with us. He is with us even now. He is with you on your darkest day. He's even with you in His presence. Feels long gone. When you wonder if He's abandoned you, He's still with you. And He will be with you at every moment that you take a breath. And on that moment that you take your very last breath, he will be with you. And for those who love him and believe in him, he will be there with you when you take your next breath on the other side of eternity, waiting for you. Jesus will never leave. And so he is why we can have peace-filled endurance, endurance that doesn't depend on ourselves, doesn't depend on our theological knowledge, it doesn't depend on your circumstances, it doesn't depend on how awesome and spiritual you are, it depends on Jesus. And Jesus alone and his presence with you. So how can we prepare for the end? Well, we can pray gospel-centered prayers. We can do quiet, faithful work. And we can have peace-centered endurance. So how do we prepare for the end of the world or for the end of just our own lives? Well, we don't need a binder. We don't need to figure out every possible circumstance that could happen, have it written down and planned out. Don't need a storm shelter filled with supplies. All that we need is Jesus and his peace. I'm going to close this in, in prayer, and then we're going to transition to a time of communion. Lord, I just ask that your peace would rule and reign in our minds and in our hearts. Lord, would you prepare us? Would you help us to, to pray prayers that are not just focused on ourselves, but prayers that are, are centered on the gospel? That we'd be more concerned with the kingdom of God than our, ourselves. Lord, would you help us to do quiet and faithful work, not worried about the world or ourselves, but just worried about being obedient to you. And Lord, we can't do any of these things without you. We try and do life on our own. Even as Christians, we can try and think we can do stuff without you or the Holy Spirit's help. And then we fall on our face and we fail. 
And so we come broken and tired and weary asking for your help once again, knowing that in your grace you will give it to us. And we pray these things through the blood of Jesus in the name of Christ. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you came and that you died and you rose again to purchase salvation for us. A salvation that we did not deserve, that we couldn't earn, and yet you gave it freely out of your love for us. And we gather every week to proclaim your death because we love you. And we gather proclaiming that you will come again. Would you come again, Lord Jesus? We cannot wait to see you. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. I invite you to stand as our worship team leads us in song once more. Children of God, hear this blessing from your Father from Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace.